What is up, everyone? Hey, hey, hey. I am Charlie. I've never done that hey, hey, hey thing. I don't know if I want to do that again. I am Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and hopefully watching Untold Stories, where twice a week I get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, the brightest crowns on the box, the sharpest tools in the shed, the folks who are an egg addition to a dozen, a flower uh, in addition to a bouquet, you know, sometimes people say like, oh, he's like a flower short of a bouquet. You're like, we're all like talking to some of the people that have that little bit of extra DNA. Those people, uh, hopefully who, who their, their, their brains operate a little bit faster and better and, and use a little bit more capacity than some of us. And, and I like talking to people and I started really talking to people who, uh, look at problems and look at the solutions differently on how they solve it. I've been talking to a lot of people and, and really the way that I've been looking at my personal problems in life and how I solve them, uh, how I look at the solutions, it's changing. And I guess it's changing because of the people that I'm talking to on the show, their kind of approach to um, solving these problems really, really has, has made me personally change my view on some of these things. I really want to Think my my best friends of the Blockworks Group. They're a media and production company that I trust. Without them, this show wouldn't be anywhere. Uh, they produce this show, and they also produce another twenty podcasts by my friends. You can check them out at Blockworks.co. This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Yield and Cosmos. Stick around to hear more about them later in this episode. With that, I'm so excited. We have two amazing guests today. You guys know when we have two guests at the same time. Because it's harder work for me and for everyone at the show. When we have two guests at the same time, you know it's going to be a good show. You know we're talking a hard topic. And you know we're going to dive right deep, deep, dive deep into some really cool stories. And I actually have one for you. But before that, I want to introduce my guest today. We got Luca Costantino. Luca, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You are the you're currently at Oasis Labs and you're creating uh, the infrastructure for privacy privacy preserving applications. You join you join the company as the first non software engineer employee and help the team move from a research project at UC Berkeley to a thirty five person venture backed startup. You guys raised forty five million dollars from Andreessen Horowitz, Excel Foundation. Prior to Oasis, you built and launched and managed products at Google, Amex, and PNG. And at the same time, we have Victor Boonin. Did I pronounce your last, both of your last names right? Okay, okay. Yeah, Victor, thank you guys both for coming on the show. And I'll give you a second to, 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 to speak in, in, in just a second. But you're the proto, uh, protocol specialist at Bison, Tail, Bison Trails. We have actually had, I think, your, your CEO, one of your founders on the show a few months ago. And it was one of our best episodes. So I'm, I'm happy to have you back someone from your company back and you have a really cool job because you get to research emerging tech and you get to translate those insights into like business development, R and D products, operations and marketing. I love doing that. I love being able to like investigate, research something and then bring it to the market before, before Bison Trails, you were involved in, you're the co-founder Perea actually a block, a blockchain research publishing and advisory focused company. And you worked at consensus. My friend Joe's company, awesome, as a blockchain product strategist and token designer. And you both focus on not Bitcoin and the forward-facing infrastructure, but you guys spend a lot of time on the back-end facing, uh, the back-end infrastructure 
and nodes and operations and all the connections between all the companies and, and all the software and everything in the space. So first of all, thank you for coming. Thank you for doing what you guys do. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Likewise. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. There's, you know, there's, there's a, um, sometimes we get into, into some of these stories and we get into different uh, subjects and, and different topics. But um, in this situation, Victor, we were talking about Bitcoin mining before uh, on the, on the pre-show before we started very quickly and, and where you grew up in, in Brooklyn. So you and I grew up very close to each other in Brooklyn. And I feel like there's so much, there's so many Brooklynites involved in, in, in Bitcoin. But um, I don't know if you knew this, but on the same avenue as you, okay, grew up a kid. His name is Yifu Guo. And same street as you, actually, like 10 blocks away, like closer to, to my house. And in fact, I mined on the second, he invented the ASIC, the first ever working ASIC on the Bitcoin network. He invented, and I mined on the second one. And I actually owned the second one for like a month. And the only reason that I owned it was because when he had to go pick it up from the airport after it passed customs, I was his only friend with a car in, in that neighborhood in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. So I was mining 30 Bitcoin a day on the second ever ASIC. I didn't even know it. Mining like five times as fast as every other FPGA miner at the time, just because I was in the right place at the right time. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love that story. Can I share a quick one of my own? Please, yeah. Uh, I, I, I did not uh, uh, have this like amazing ASIC connection, but when I got into the space, uh, actually in, in around mid-2017, I built my own uh, GPU miner for Ethereum using like GTX 1070s. Yeah. And it cost me maybe something like $5,000, $6,000. And I was like buying everything at the top and it was a total mess. And I ended up mining, I, I think maybe like 1.2 ETH in it uh, at my house before I had to shut it off because it was just so freaking hot. And so if ETH ever breaks 5,000, I will have finally been made whole on that investment. <laughs> it will, it will, and, and you will. I kind of want to dive into some of the topics that are very hot that we're talking about today. Um, one of those topics is Taproot, the activation that's, that's, that just got uh, talked about a few days ago. And now uh, we're going to be seeing, I think it's in July, it's probably one of the first, I think it's the first major soft fork, the major upgrade to Bitcoin taproot activation since SegWit. And I feel like we're still kind of like recovering or relaxing from the crazy SegWit drama that we had to deal with back in 2016. Taproot from, and, and, uh, taproot from everyone's understanding is not a, uh, a, a something that's uh, very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, controversial. However, what seems to be controversial right now is the idea, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is the idea that if miners don't signal for a user activate for a soft fork, node operators can supersede that and go through what's called a user activated soft fork and push something through that may not be wanted or approved by everyone. And I, I know that every listener right now, myself included, is like, whoa, I'm very confused. I always thought that 
when there's a change for Bitcoin, all the miners just say, yes, 51%, it's a it's it's in. But that's not really how it works. And because the the governance and the rules weren't really defined ever, or Satoshi never really thought that there would be controversial changes, how this all kind of, you know, all the game theory, uh, it scares a lot of people and is almost seen as as that something that could take Bitcoin down. I want to hear both of your perspectives, your answers, and all of your thoughts. Take as much time. Uh, yeah, I, if look uh, if you don't mind if I go first, um, you know I think one I am extremely glad that this that the software is not controversial. Um, I'm 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 not looking forward to having like a lot of controversy general in general, and I'm hoping that that dies down as much as possible in the coming years as the market matures. Um, I will say on the um, you know user activated software and like one of the advantages for people to run their own nodes um, is, is actually something that Vitalik talks about, which is you know when you try to um, force a change to the network, you have to convince all these other parties to follow the change with you. And on the opposite side of that, which is the you know user activated software, if node operators like regular users decide to go down this path it can have like this very strong forcing function of saying like, hey, miners, like we, the users that are the ultimate lifeblood of this network, like the network will not be possible without us, just like it would not be possible without you. Um, we choose to go down this path and you know, you should go where the users are going because that's where the majority of the uh, transactions and the majority of the usage is going to come from in the future. So I, I do think that this is something that, you know, preferably we would not have to see used anytime soon. Um, just because like, you know, I'd like for all the parties to be, you know, on the same side and, and aligned in, in a, in, in a really healthy way. But as a measure of last resort, I'm, I'm really glad that it, you know, that it's possible. And I don't think that it's something that, you know, poses an existential risk to the Bitcoin, uh, to the Bitcoin blockchain. And the reason I think that is because, you know, that's kind of the whole point of Bitcoin is to enable, you know, self-interested, selfish parties between, you know, to, uh, you know, pursue their own self-interest, but in doing so, advance the the blockchain as a whole, you know, between the miners, the developers, and the users. And so, I think that this you know fits squarely within that balance of power. Yeah. Luca, what do you think? Yeah, I I looked at at, at the Taproot um, upgrade from another from another angle, right? Which is which is the angle of of privacy, which is what I'm most interested in too, and. And and what I what I understood um, is that what, what was considered something that would upgrade privacy for Bitcoin um, may not be uh, may not be as it seemed. And and so my understanding of of this upgrade is that essentially Bitcoin um, uh, supports scripts that allow people to specify some rules around like um, time locks and, and uh, multi-signature requirements. So you can specify rules such as like unlock those Bitcoins if three people sign on, on the 5th of May um, yeah. and, and, and like uh, vice versa, right? And, and from my understanding, yeah, like um, this script needs to be, needs to be published uh, and needs to be public. And so when you know something about these rules then, and you can see the transfer happening, then you can infer via the rules um, sort of like uh, breaking the idea that this rule should, should, should stay somehow private. Uh, and Taproot was, was uh, understood to solve this trade-off, but um, 
but um, but apparently, like the, the the thing is, yeah, you can keep the script private, um, or I mean, you don't need to publish the script as well. Um, but what it basically means is that only like edge cases will be will be sold um, by Taproot. Not really, uh, it's not really like a privacy upgrade for Bitcoin, as someone understood it. Uh, so that's that's where I that's where I um, dedicated more attention to DeFi, DeFi, DeFi. You keep hearing me talk about it, and we know at the same time that the stock market is at record highs, but the economy is broken in recession. Government debt is off the charts. They're printing trillions of dollars. We need a new financial system, and I've been talking about it. We've all been talking about it. Decentralized finance. We know that too. We know that there's like forty billion dollars in value sitting in all these DeFi protocols, and it's barely a year old it's new decentralized finance and it's brilliant and it works and there's a lot of money to be made in things like yield farming being able to provide liquidity but a lot of them are high risk there's scams and rug pulls that are so common to investors we don't want to repeat what happened a few years ago in the crypto space but what if there was a way to access those DeFi yields in a safe and transparent way. Well, I have the CEO, Tim Frost, of Yield.app, my newest sponsor on the show. Listen to that show and check out Yield.app because here you have this team that is constantly filtering through all these DeFi investments. They're consolidating your gas fees and they're only investing in a select few that generate more than 20%. But their risk is not, they're not just investing in these tokens and waiting for them to do well. They're also providing liquidity. They're doing yield farming. All these low risk, high investment to make the uh, infrastructure more efficient and better. So not only you're investing and making money, but you're also helping to grow this ecosystem. Make sure you check them out at yield.app. That's yield.app. And listen to the untold stories with Tim Frost, the CEO. We have all these coins and tokens and they sit on all these different blockchains and we have to keep multiple wallets and different addresses and everything. And the only way to do it without having to do that is trust a centralized place like an exchange or a broker or an app that you use. Well, what if there was a way to do it without having to trust one different place in the ethos of crypto? Cosmos, my sponsor Cosmos that has been around for so long they're actually following their original roadmap and being able to offer universal wallet, high node synchronization, inter-blockchain communication, bridging Bitcoin and Ethereum together and keeping it all on one wallet, being able to build on top of it and do the coolest things possible. Make sure you check them out at stargate.cosmos.network. That's cosmos.stargate.network. You can play with all these different features. It's so cool, and it's really bringing the next wave of crypto and adoption. If you really want to be ahead of everyone else and all your friends, make sure you understand the new technology that's coming out. Stargate.cosmos.network. You're going to love it. Right, right now, all the parties involved in Bitcoin want you know potential privacy um, uh, including code or whatever, or, you know, an upgrade, an, an amazing upgrade. And I try to like create game theory, but what if like 10 years from now, the, the, who is, you know, we look at Bitcoin as an industry, everything is changing and we're more industrialized and, you know, a government comes out and says, we think this is a change that Bitcoin needs in order for us to like leave Bitcoin alone or something like that. And so everyone is caught between a rock and a hard place. And so there is a big contentious fight. So really, and that would be, and, and so we're not talking about hard forks, we're talking about soft forks, which are a lot easier because they allow, and the very basic understanding difference for everyone is that soft forks allow for backwards compatibility. Meaning that if you don't upgrade your node software, 
you will still be allowed to take part in the Bitcoin blockchain with all the old consensus does not change. It's an upgrade, but it's not a uh, a, a forward-looking upgrade that you can't run it unless you a hard fork is when everyone has to make the changes and then you need 51% to upgrade because then the longest chain is the one that's followed and we're, nodes and Bitcoin miners are stupid and they only follow the longest chain. That's the way Bitcoin was designed. So my question to you guys and really, Luca, you talked about privacy. I want to ask you privacy-related question here. Um. For those who don't really understand, what is, in your view, the difference between privacy and anonymity? Because you see regulators and politicians talking about the need for privacy. We see bills and laws talking about privacy, but then you see anonymity is a very negative thing. And I think I finally understand the difference. But like, what's kind of your view or the regulators view or just people in general's view of like the difference between the two? Well, I think the what was really clear by now is the is the uh, distinction by privacy coins and privacy preserving networks, uh, and this is to me the most fundamental thing that um, like distinct like creates a distinction between the two, right? Um, so when we when we say um, that coin should be private, everything is private uh, by default. That means that essentially there is no way to trace back to, to the identity of the user. And, um, and this is like dangerous because the effort to, um, the effort to trace back uh, and, and link a certain action um, to a judgment on whether that action is right or wrong, and if it's wrong, maybe like go after that person somehow, tends to be really, really expensive and complicated. Yeah. And it tends to imply that that user needs to make a mistake along the process. While in the case of privacy-preserving networks or like privacy-preserving transactions, it's a completely different story. Like the, what you're solving for is not the anonymity by default, but is the protection um, from people who don't need to know, right? And someone, someone told to me, Maybe when I asked him that question back in time, someone talked to me, not because we uh, wear clothes, it means that we have something to hide, right? And this hmm. is and this is like a good analogy that to me, to me makes it super easy to understand this, this trade-off. Um, protection and, and, and privacy preservation means that you can exclude some of the information from most entities that will look at that network but you still make this information available to comply with regulation or to um, uh, share information with the business partners that need to trust you somehow. And to me, the fundamental difference is that staying anonymous means that um, the information is, is anonymous and there is maybe like no way to retrieve that information while stay, uh, like, well, retaining privacy control means that you retain the ownership of, you, of your information and you decide who you want to share that information to. And even when you decide to share that information with someone, that information doesn't have to be transferred to someone else. Because ah. in that case, all of a sudden becomes public information. So privacy is, is kind of like where the data is there in a way, but the owner of the data gets to choose when, where, what, how to share it, where anonymity on a base layer there's just no data at all. And it's purposely not 
is is not wanted or provided. And you look at kind of like, I hate to bring up negative things, but you look at things like Liberty Reserve, right? That was anonymous. There was no attempt to ever say like, okay, we're going to collect your data. Not Liberty Reserve, eGold or whatever it was. Sorry. Well, that eLiberty Reserve too. There was no attempt to, to even maintain the data. Whereas with privacy, we're talking about de-siloing data. So it's like medical data, for example. I can control all my medical data on my phone. And when I go to a doctor, there should be a way I can scan or NFC chip to share temporarily that data with the doctor. As opposed to like where everything is going right now. Yeah, it's a very yeah. good way of putting it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, that's at least how I see it. And and maybe maybe the addiction the addition here is that it doesn't necessarily have to be like medical records, but it could be your daily actions. If you think about like social networks, right? If you if you think about online advertising, this is this is the most common use case, and there's like plenty of narrative out there. So we're not going to spend time on this, but think about how many data points are used and monetized in that big environment of digital ads. So it doesn't have to be like as sensitive as a medical record. It could simply be what you do during your day. It could simply be the clicks that you do on the web. It could be like everything that you generate. And the most interesting thing to me is the relation, how the relationship between the user and the company or like the user and the user or the company and the company change because of the presence of the ability of retaining information, retaining and controlling information. You move from a model that tends to be very vertical where there is this big paradox where one side of the equation um, doesn't really value their own information and the other side of the equation totally values that information up to the point that they would do anything to get access to that information. Yep. And how do you solve this imbalance? If you switch the control, the, the ability to control this data, you essentially flip the game theory and you change the equilibrium point and you change the way this cooperation really happens. So, Victor, are you guys working with Luca? So, Luca, you guys are building a privacy-first cloud computing platform. I really want to understand how you know that works but victor are you guys working together on 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 building that so uh bison trails is an infrastructure provider and so we help people run nodes on various blockchains so we currently support about 40 different chains um and so on oasis specifically one of one of the things that we do is we run validators to uh, secure the oasis blockchain and then as the oasis blockchain expands and continues to add support for paradigms which you can think of them as almost like side chains um, that are able to uh, you know use the use the primary chain, the main oasis blockchain for for security. Um, as those paradigms continue expanding and, and more and start supporting more use cases, then bison trails could you know support those paradigms as well and, and run infrastructure on them. So making it easier for people to you know build on them, deploy them, use them, and otherwise interact with them. Okay, so you're so so Bison Trails. You guys are running. A, it's a node as a service company. And by the way, if you told me ten years ago I could have started a company, and you guys just raised another big funding round, so congratulations, of 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 running nodes for all these different blockchains and being that like infrastructure provider, I would have said that would never make money, and that's a bad because why? But it it actually is. And when you know going back to the days when the Bitcoin blockchain 
so so let me start from the beginning for everyone. When Bitcoin for when you go to Bitcoin.org, Bitcoin.org, and you download software, that software was your wallet, was your Bitcoin miner, and it was the node. It did everything. So Victor and Luca, can you guys tell the listeners and explain to me and the listeners when those diverged and when and what those and what miners are doing and what well really we know what miners are doing but what are node operators doing what are nodes doing what are the difference why do they diverge because that really is the heart of some of these like was the segwit issue was the nodes versus uh the miners when did that diverge and how and why yeah so um i think that there's a spectrum of trustlessness when it comes to interacting with a blockchain. And on the one hand, the, the most trustless way is if you do everything yourself, right? You, you run your own node, you have your own wallet, you can like even write your own software for how to interact with things or how to batch transactions and sure. do all kinds of stuff. Um, and you, and you, can, you can DIY everything, but that is very hard. And given that you know, Bitcoin and, and other, uh, other assets are bearer instruments, any mistakes can be you know, permanent and extremely costly. And so when you think about like a custodian, right? Like they very much want to do things uh, themselves, right? In, in, in many regards, when it comes to like handling money, because it's so, it's so important, they run a lot of their own nodes. Risk. Um, but if you're a regular user, um, the question becomes like, well, you know, how much, you know, how hard should it be to interact with, with, a, with a blockchain like Bitcoin or otherwise? Um, and how much are you willing to give up some of that trust and, and actually trust another another provider or another entity? And so that's where some of, the, some of those diversions started happening in that, you know, in a perfect world, you're running your own node and, and connecting to it and it works perfectly and it's super fast and, and not resource intensive and you're able to trustlessly access the network and send transactions and do everything. But the reality is that for most people, you know, they don't have a node running all the time, right? And they, you know, they turn off their computers or the node falls out of sync and maintaining the node, upgrading it, securing it, all takes Even the easiest time. ones. Like I have a Casa Hodel yeah. and I, it's still, it's not, it's still very much like feel like I'm buying a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. And you have to like yeah, play exactly. with it. Yeah. And, and, and so that's why some of that divergence started happening in that, you know, as a, as a user, we, you know, we tend to trust the entities in our lives, right? Like mm. trust, you know, Gemini or Coinbase, for example, like they tend to do a really good job. Um, and so in a, in a similar way, I trust, you know, when I send a transaction through Ledger, like I'm not running my own node, of course, um, but I trust that Ledger is, you know, is running nodes that is pre presenting me accurate information. And when I broadcast, when I send a transaction, I broadcast it accurately um, and gets it out to the network. Zero trust doesn't exist, maybe. I mean, you know, there's it's all a, about de-risking uh, trust. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me reminds me of the example where it's like, if you want something zero trust, you know, build your own computer. But how do you know that the you know the minerals are the right ones? Well, go mine your own minerals and like so you know, what's, you keep kind of going down the stack. The the only thing in the world that I trust death and taxes, right? No, but the, really yeah. the one plus one is two. So if you look at the most basic basic math equation or the most basic basic you know law of physics or something that you can see and feel or you know, you know, and this is a very, like I'm using these terms that we have to define, but if you look at the basic and you look at that, like one plus one equals two, how much do you trust that? Almost completely, but there's nothing perfect. There's no perfection. It doesn't exist in the world. There's nothing that's completely whole 100%. It doesn't exist. So now if you look at like one plus one equals two, 
that's level, you know, 0.001 of trust, you know, the lowest level possible. Bitcoin, you know, running your own, it just, it's all about de-risking that. It's not about not trusting. It's about, I rather trust myself in this instant. And I rather trust myself to take it a step further. I need to trust my own software. I need to trust my own lines of code, my own semicolon, everything. Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. And I think that's especially true, you know, as we, you know, talk about privacy solutions, such, such as Taproot or such as what Oasis is building or some of the things that are, that are going on on, um, you know, Zcash or, or Ethereum or other blockchains, um, that's what a lot of it ends up boiling down to, right? Whether it's, a, you know, a trusted ceremony or like there's, you know, moon math, essentially that you have to, like, you know, that you, that you don't, you don't know it, right? Sure. Like you're, you're not going to be able to go and check their equations. Um, and so there are always like these elements of trust. And so, you know, I, I agree completely. It's about figuring out, you know, where to rely on yourself and where to rely on others in a way that enables you to live, you know, the kind of life that, that you want to lead, essentially. So when you're running your own node or you decide you want to you want to do that and you want to be you want to go further. So if someone's listening and they want to uh, you know download their own node software and they have a computer that they can run full time. And then so you have to actually keep your if you're running a node, there are private keys that need to be kept somewhat exposed there. So you wouldn't want to run this on like a virtual private server or anything like that. You'd want to be running it in your house on your own computer. And then you got to get the port forwarding set up. And I'm talking about just for Bitcoin. And I, I, uh, we talk about old stories. There was actually, I remember when it changed over, when you were, you can sync the Bitcoin blockchain directly from the software. And then it got so big that you'd have to download the blockchain from like a, like BitTorrent. And everyone was like all up in arms about it. It's like, how can we have a blockchain that you can't sync in a few hours? And it was like, now you look at the, th let's talk about nodes for a second. What are they doing what are they doing? And then Luca, tell me like what, when you look at a different blockchain or project, how can you tell if they are privacy focused, but what are, you know, what are, what are nodes actually doing? Because we understand what miners are doing. Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll take the nodes part and then Luca focus on the privacy. Um, you know, on the node side, they really do two basic, um, you know, overview, overviews of things. Like the first one is, they read from the blockchain, right? So they are constantly listening and talking to other nodes, right? That's the basis of a decentralized distributed network. So they, you know, they gossip, they, you know, receive transactions from others, they pass transactions along, they send and receive blocks. Um, if you would like to um, send a transaction, then you would essentially package it up yourself, give it to the node and you're like, hey node, please send this out to people, um, send it out to the network so that a miner can include it in a block. Um, and then, and they make sure that you know everything that they receive like follows uh, follows the rules of the protocol. Like they don't want to be receiving transactions that, that weren't properly uh, constructed or or, blo or blocks that are that are faulty in some way. Another thing that they do uh, is they're able to read things from the network. And so you, as a user or uh, you know a developer or an application, you would like to know what's happening on the blockchain. So you know you might have user addresses, you might have smart contract interactions, you might you know want to present some kind of data and analytics. Um, as part of your dashboard, all that information is on chain and you have to be interacting with the blockchain in order to pull it. And so you can pull it directly by running queries um, or you can actually like just dump the data into, into some other kind of database and interact with it that way. And so nodes are really like the, you know, the primary thing in, in, in which you interact with the blockchain. 
um, and they are absolutely central to any, any, you know, any user, any business, any entity or, you know, government, anybody at all that ever wants to have anything to do with the blockchain. And then Luca, you know, about the, you know, privacy and, and how you, you know, how you think about it on different networks and, and what the nodes there are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, when, when I think of this question, the, the way I answer this is, is uh, kind of in, in a very simplistic way, right? And is you are running uh, or you want to run computation, keeping the input private, keeping the data private. You don't want the data to be, you don't actually know what the data is, right? Um, the computation runs inside these enclaves, these this things that keep the, the data um, confidential and, and separate the CPU from, from the data. And, and now you have a new problem that you didn't have in a public network, which is I need to know if that computation is correct. And if no one can see the data of that computation, how can I tell that that computation is actually correct? And one way to do it is, mm. is, the, is the, I mean, this highlights the importance of the consensus layer that needs to agree on, on, on the output of that certain computation. And, and, and this makes the blockchain concept as a whole extremely important because, or this is, this, the decentralization concept as a whole very important because otherwise you need to put all your trust in one secret node or in one, one thing that executes the computation for you. Oh, so when, so, oh, sorry. Oh, you go ahead. So when you, when you are pinging a node or you're going to blockchain.info or blockchair or any, you know, major blockchain and you're trying to get data, just like looking up the balance of an address, you're not looking at one centralized node. You're looking at blockchain.info's nodes who are maintaining their own ledgers. And then the only reason that their ledger syncs up with everyone else's ledger is because all those nodes are talking to each other in real time. So there's no centralized like location. You're just checking one. So theoretically, someone can set up like a fake node that's with all the data, turn it off from the network, do their own double spending, set up a blockchain explorer and say, look, here's your transaction. Like theoretically, that's that could not an attack vector, but someone could do that because that's how nodes work. It's very intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why you need to have a lot of nodes, not just one or not just 10. You need to have thousands of nodes. And I'd say you need to have independent people running these nodes because one of the things that that it's not obviously visible is that some chains are. Uh, claiming to be decentralized mm. and and this is true because like there are multiple nodes running so they, they if you if you build an excel spreadsheet and you see you, you put the name on 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 one line and the number of nodes on 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 the on, on on one column you would get like the most projects tend to be decentralized uh, because you they 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 match this this property that you just mentioned which is like having multiple nodes the problem is that who runs these nodes? This is often a problem. And I mean, I said often, maybe not that often, but um, 
how can and, how can people know how do how do how do I how do how do uh, the viewers and listeners how can they they're they're checking a token or a project they want to invest in or or whatever or speculate on or, or use you know use a, a different project or buy an NFT or whatever how can they check that that blockchain is in fact one that has multiple independent nodes or things like that and not some, like like more of like a centralized current system that runs on like three validators or whatever is there a good resource? So this is actually a really, really great question. Um, it's very multi, multi-factorial, I would say. Is there a single great resource? No, there is not. Um, and, and that's definitely going to be uh, you know, a challenge for folks that are very, very new to the space that are just trying to figure this out for the first time. However, if you are an infrastructure provider or you are somebody that is familiar with you know, a lot of the core kind of like workings of a chain, there's a number of signs that you can look for um, you know, to really determine this. The first thing is like pretty simple. Look at a block explorer and look at what validators or the nodes there are, right? Like what, what are they calling themselves, right? A lot of the time people will just self-identify themselves as being part of the same mm. you know, group or, or organization. Um, the second thing you might look for is how are the nodes actually running? Like what namespaces are they using? Like how do they look, how, do, how are they behaving? You know, how quickly are they responding to things? Um, like, like as, as one example, on the Cosmos blockchain, uh, we, we run a validator that uses uh, NHSM, which is a hardware security module. It's, it's a more secure way of storing the private keys. Um, and we noticed that uh, with, a particular, with a particular other validator, we noticed that we and some other uh, validators were missing blocks for some reason, and we were trying to figure out what it was. And we realized eventually that because that validator had a different flag set that, that most of the network doesn't use that made it essentially like not wait the right amount of time before sending a block. And uh, validators that were using HSMs had a slightly slower response time hmm. um, compared to ones that weren't. And so they were missing that block every once in a while. And I, and I thought that was fascinating because you know, we could just determine that uh, based off conversations with what was going on and just you know, our understanding of the network. Um, Another thing that you know people can look for is um, you know use a sniff test, right? If a network comes along and says you know they're and they're one month old and they said that we have ten thousand nodes and they're all independent actors, you know, and they have you know a thousand followers on Twitter or five hundred people in their Discord, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff is very you know it should raise some suspicion. Um, and so there's no like perfect answer. But by looking at a number of different factors, you can start piecing together a picture of like, okay, how decentralizes the network really? And from there, you can start kind of like, you know, forming a picture of it. That's, that's really brilliant. Thank you. That's some of the best advice I've ever heard guests give uh, myself and my listeners. Uh, because honestly, this one metric is not something anyone looks at. In fact, people probably need to do more due diligence and look at projects because what ended the last bear market, what ended the last bull market is when there was so much crap and shit that it overtook the good stuff. And that's partly our own fault because we allowed that to mainstream. So it's our responsibility as users of this space, as builders, as growers, as holders, traders, speculators, investors to, to like self-regulate and self-maintain for our own. I hate to do this, but that's all the time we have on the show today. Victor and Luca, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on, on Untold Stories. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Victor. 